Sometimes you get lucky and your game is an instant hit without investing in growth. For everyone else, there's IronSource. IronSource is a game tech company which builds technologies that helps you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor Fund are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on to ironsource.com, that's ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Welcome, everybody, to Twig92. We've got myself, Joe Kim, Mishka Kakoff, Adam Telfer, Eric Kress. Today, we are going to be covering three stories. First, Microsoft to launch xCloud streaming free with Xbox Game Pass Ultimate in September by The Verge. China removes Supercell's heyday and 2,500 other games from iOS App Store by VentureBeat. And finally, Glue reloads its war chest for mobile game acquisitions by VentureBeat. And I think we know who that is. Right, Mishka? Right, Eric? <laughs> anyway. Oh, this is going to be a spicy one. I like that, that we have the cherry on the top with glue. We're going to warm up a little bit with xCloud. I don't know who cares. The 2,500 games and out of which only one was mentioned by name, and that is Heyday. Like, like people are going crazy about, oh, I can't play Heyday, which is like a 12-year-old game. It's, you know, is that the biggest game that's being banned by China? I, I, I suppose there were a bigger one than that. No, I think I, for now, that's all, all they're seeing. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I can't wait. How, how are you guys doing before we jump into updates? Any anything cool happening with you guys? Well, we had a scare. Oh, come on. My, no, my news is bigger than yours, Eric. No, come what? On. I bought a house. Come on. It's got to oh. be number one. <laughs> oh, that's boring. Come on. Everyone. <laughs> come. <laughs> how, how, how's the housing market in, in the six? Uh, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, because really? as COVID, um, all the restrictions came out, everybody in the city of Toronto wanted to leave and go buy in the suburbs. So all of a sudden, you get this huge exodus from the city, especially from condos. Mm -hmm. um, so housing prices were already ridiculous in Toronto, getting so much worse. In Finland, they show a lot of those um, shows where where um, it's either like the Canadians are re like renovating a house and they're either selling or keeping it. I don't know what the show is called. And the other one is where the real estate agent is kind of looking for, for houses. They're always Canadian shows. And I'm always, I love that show. I love both of those shows. They're so amazing. And um, I don't know. I hope they make an episode. Ruthless Canadians in the real estate markets. Yeah. You know? and, and everything is so expensive. And then I'm just reminded like, oh, it's Canadian dollars. They treat like monopoly money. <laughs> like houses <laughs> in Vancouver are like 3 million. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, then, and then it's like a teacher and a chiropractor buying a house. Like... <laughs> It's just insane. All right. Let's roll. I got, I got places to go, people to meet. All right. Yes. You're so important. <laughs> Eric, what was your big thing? What's, what's, what's no, the No, I mean, it, it, Joseph is rushing me, so I, never mind. Uh, no, no, go, go for it, Eric. Go, go for it. So my wife is a veterinarian, and uh, she's been working this whole time with the whole crew, and two people in the office got the COVID. Uh -oh. So we were freaking out. 
And so now we are completely sequestered. We are not leaving this house and we have gotten tested to make sure that she's not spread. But so far, so good. No symptoms. Um, I'm almost like, I just want to get it so I get over with it and I can just go anywhere I want and say, Domino, motherfucker, I have, I've already had it. But it doesn't look like that's the case. So, but we'll find out in a few days. So we'll, we'll let you know next week whether or not we, uh, how, we, how, how we are doing. Look at Eric being a bug catcher. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so starting with updates, first update, big congrats to one of the really good guys in our industry, Travis Boatman, CEO of Carbonated, who just announced an 8.5 million round of financing from Andreessen Horowitz, Golden Ventures, and Bitcraft. The company is working on a squad-based shooter and publicly stating a big part of their strategy is building AI and investing in live ops technology. Second update, VentureBeat reporting that game investment in Q2 of this year increased significantly to $7.8 billion, 3.1 times higher than in Q1, but slightly fewer deals at 100 relative to 110 in Q1. Final update for me is that website Visual Capitalist has released a big-ass infographic detailing the overall market size of the online gaming industry. I'll include a link in the show notes, but kind of a fun historical perspective and gives some high level trends. You can see things like how mobile gaming compares to the other platforms and it includes new zoo market data between different platforms. So showing mobile increasing share by 2022 to 49% of online gaming revenue and showing how the overall market is increasing from about 165 billion by end of this year and estimated to increase to 196 billion in 2022. Mishka? We had an article posted on the Instructor Fund by Jeff Witt, not written by myself, I was editor. So the article was called How Riot Can Turn Teamfight Tactics into a Billion Dollar Game. So Riot Teamfight Tactics was launched quickly to catch the emerging auto chess genre that was gaining popularity as a mod on Twitch. I think they were kind of competing with uh, with Valve and who launched first. And I believe Valve launched their, I forgot what the name of that game was, but they I believe they launched first, but Riot was quickly behind them. Uh, anyway, they succeeded in shipping fast, but clearly didn't pay much attention to the business case of the game. And after four months, TFT has 43 cents of revenue per download on mobile. And it's important to notice that this is only the mobile revenue and not the whole revenue, because I believe that most of the players are playing this game on desktop since they have the, uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of Riot fans are playing this game. And, um, and the mobile, mobile UX is quite poor if you're playing it on phone. I play it on iPad and it's great, but, but on phone, it's just not that fun. Anyway, so Jeff Witt, proposes three elements to, to monetize this game. And, and I think this article was interesting, or this, this question was interesting because Riot is, is, is you know, not very active when it come to, comes to monetization. And I think their audience is very used to having almost purely cosmetic and, and just very, very light monetization compared to, compared to engagement. Anyways, so he proposed three things. Uh, one was champion mastery, which mainly means that as you play more with certain champions, they would get a small, small, small power progression, not even as large as it's in Brawl Stars. And he proposed to monetize that power progression through subscriptions, where you would just take subscriptions for certain classes or origins. And as you play with those certain characters, you will be improving that, that, uh, that champion. And of course, every time you add new champions, like the game does, as well as they add new 
origins. I don't know if they add new classes, but anyways, as they add new ones, you would have new subscription for those and, and that would keep the, uh, the game going, organization going. The second part that, that Jeff proposed was tournaments. And essentially this was a little bit like Hearthstone. So you have an entry fee, or well, not always an entry, first entry is, is free. And then as you play, you can kind of re-roll your battles and earn more points by, by using tournament tokens. And the third one was basically daily events and that would have you come in every day and there will be certain type of restrictions and so forth and so forth. Um, in this article, he doesn't talk a lot about rewards. And personally, I feel that the rewards is one of the most important element that is missing. So this game offers you cosmetics and the cosmetics are quite light because you're not putting the cosmetics on the champions. You're basically putting it, um, there's like emojis and, and your board you're playing with and stuff like that, but it's not too interesting. Um, I think the power progression could be cool because you would have something else to blame than your skill set, uh, at least a little bit. Uh, but it seems that that's out of realms. And I just remember when we posted this, Adam read this and he, oh, I'm not going to repeat what Adam said, but he totally dunked on it. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, neither of you are getting hired to write it. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. And, and me, I'm not getting, like, first of all, not even applying, cool company and everything, but also, as an editor, I'm already banned, according to Adam. Like, <laughs> even me just editing this. Just your this name post. is associated with that article. Yeah, yeah my, my name was associated, so I will never work at Riot since I edited this post, according to Adam, which was, like, a pretty big dunk, in my opinion. <laughs> okay. Was it uh, Giovanni posted the article on auto chess right yes. like like doing basically like a deconstructive auto chess mm -hmm. uh proposed i think actually like fairly similar systems right like pushing a little bit of that pay to win angle um and immediately i think somebody from riot on twitter called them out and said like look we'll, we'll, we would never implement this so like don't even propose it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they wouldn't implement minor power progression that that exists in league of legends their their rune system yeah, uh, but there's a fine line there, right? Like basically there's there's paying for more strategic options or there's paying for permanent power progression. Hey, this is like, this is the same shit we were talking about like before all these games came out, right? They're not going to be willing to do what needs to be done in order to make money, right? Yeah. I mean, they're going to be find this, benevolent, right? And that's not going to work in mobile. Yeah, I find this really confusing. If this was any other game, it would just... You know, it would be deemed as 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 a failure because they wouldn't have money to to grow this game or even keep operating it. But in case of in case of Riot, where you know they they can go for these type of non monetization monetization systems, and and I you know it's it's weird, it's weird. So I mean, but like I, we we had the Riot guy on, and we said, mm -hmm. or I said at least that 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 this is exactly the problem. It's like these cosmetic based economies only work when you have them at scale, and it's like the biggest game in the world, right? But when it's not at scale, like it just can't grow the way they expect. And that's why any fast follows or, or anybody copying, you know, whether it's these Arena Valor or all these stupid MOBAs on, on mobile um, and this type of game, like this is never going to work. So it's never, yeah. never going to do it. And, uh, and I, I imagine TFT won't be as big as other games. Since I'm playing it, I'm loving it. That usually means it's a niche game. So. Uh. <laughs> Did you say like Arena, Arena Valor would never work? No, TFT. Okay, TFT. No, no, Eric, like, you, just, you just said like one of the biggest games in the world would never No, work. no, it won't work in the West. That's in the West, okay, let's, <laughs> let's be Sorry. specific. Sorry. All right, next. So the second, up, second um, article I want to talk about was uh, the one 
where's this from? This was from The Verge. And The Verge was talking about game developers are struggling to stay productive during the pandemic. So this was a covering the GDC survey that had 2,500 developers um, answering the survey and 70% said they switched to working from home. I would have expected a larger amount, but anyways, so the workers cited specific problems around childcare, communications, distractions, as well as general anxiety over larger troubles, um, such as you know economical and health related. Anyways, 32% reported that they felt productivity had decreased at home. Developers also report their creativity had somewhat decreased. 28% said that, so third pretty much or greatly decreased, 77% said that. And there's a lot of percentages. Anyway, 37% of the response report overall business is about the same, while another 24% said it has somewhat increased. So this is really good news. So over half of the industry has, has increased um, or, or just stayed the same. Anyway, many developers, 30, 40% said that they are working longer hours than pre-pandemic and more than half of the developers say that their companies have adapted to new practices and process that will continue once lockdown ends. There wasn't a lot of, um, a lot of analysis in this, in this um, survey, uh, but just coming in from, from personal perspective, when we first moved to this work from home, uh, which uh, I'm not doing anymore, but, but anyway, like, like with, with kids and with my wife as well working, it was, I think, impossible. Uh, to, to work from home with, with having your kids at the same time. Luckily, we had the daycare that was open, so we were able to, after a couple of weeks, just decide to take the kids to, to daycare. Because, I mean, with both parents working, I, I can't imagine doing, doing anything anything that, that requires concentration unless you do it in the middle of the night. Then, then you're not sleeping, and I don't know how good you are then. So this is, a, um, this, is a, this is a huge deal in California right now because yeah. Newsom just basically said that they're not going back to school uh, for the fall or that they'll have to be homeschooled, which is just a huge onerous on anybody that has two du double people that are both working. And it's going to be a huge problem. We talk about productivity. I mean, there's so much game development, so many people in, in, in the Bay Area and in, in LA that do gaming. And this is going to be, a, a, I think, a big problem. Start, and I think it also likely will start to affect the tech industry far more because I think we, we had a short term issue, you know, at the end of the school year last year. But if we have a whole semester in which everyone's staying at home. It's going to be, I think productivity will start to get really impacted if I were to guess. Yeah. Anecdotally, I'm hearing from a lot of folks at the bigger companies that they're just, they've got zoom meetings scheduled back to back for like, yes. <laughs> like yes. eight hours a day. And, and then they and try to do work after that. And in addition to all the situational context stuff in terms of like different work environments at home and people having kids and stuff like that. Exactly. And that was, that was the biggest, uh, biggest hurdle for me when, when, so during this pandemic, I also started a startup and kind of left the corporation world. But, but during that, during that time running a, a large team, it was crazy because you were in the meetings all the time and there was just no time to do any thinking. And then, then you're taking care of your kid. And then at some point you're like, okay, so I need to do a little bit of thinking, but I can't because my wife is working and I don't have to do this. And that it's just, it's, it won't work. It's, but again, there are people who don't have kids and they're like saying like, well, I'm working almost too much. And I watched all the Netflix shows. It's like two <laughs> different worlds. And people yeah. are posting like, what should I watch on Netflix? I'm like, what? Like on what time? I don't even have time to play my own game, let alone other games, let alone watch Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think it's also just people have not adapted to management process. Unlike some kind of famous Silicon Valley talking heads who are like, yeah, people will figure out how to do this work from home stuff in a couple of weeks. No, 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 no. Managing a team work from home is completely different way you have to do stuff. Anyway, but but I think that's the crux of it, right? Is like as soon as everybody work remote, um, actually managing people dramatically changes. You can figure exactly. out the technology, which I think a lot of companies have, right? You figured out Zoom, you figured out how to, your VPNs, you figured out all your yeah. security. But the real issue is how do you get people to iterate when they're not in a work environment very, very quickly, where you don't have, you know, you can't lean back and look at somebody's screen and give them feedback ad hoc. Everything becomes a meeting. Everything has to be pre-scheduled. Yeah. Um, and it becomes very, very hard to really manage people effectively. That and and the fact that that. everybody that you're managing might be in a different situational context. And the one thing big companies suck at is going off of a set process, right? So if you have to have different processes for different situations at a big company, you're basically fucked. So anyway, it's a can of worms. Let's, let's roll on to the next topic. We can maybe cover it in a different podcast or something. Luckily, (laughs) no lockdown in Finland. So we're... (laughs) We're smooth sailing. Okay, folks, before we talk about the news, a quick commercial break to talk about Beta Hat. So stay tuned. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. BetaHat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And BetaHat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and SKU planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of BetaHat. BetaHat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. And we are back to talk more about Microsoft xCloud, China, and Glue. So here we go. All right, rolling on to the news. So Microsoft to launch xCloud streaming free with Xbox Game Pass Ultimate in September. So Microsoft's game streaming service will finally hit the market. Project xCloud, which has been discussed quite a bit and speculated about, will finally launch in September. So we get to see what it's all about. Free to Xbox Game Pass Ultimate subscribers. The service will also be renamed to something else TBD so far. Uh, The service will basically allow Xbox players to play games on mobile devices or start a game on console and resume on phone or tablet. Got to say a little bit of a niche application there. Microsoft promised more than 100 Xbox Game Pass titles to be playable on phone. Currently, the launch countries for the service have not yet been announced. However, The Verge notes that Microsoft has been building out Azure data centers throughout the U.S. and Europe with Xbox One S-Blades. The Verge also notes that functions on Apple versus Android will be different as there are ongoing discussions about Apple App Store policies that may limit some features on iOS. Microsoft also stated they imagine a big use case for xCloud, which will also be trialing games before doing the big download. So you'll be able to see games your friends are playing and you'd you'd immediately be able to jump in and give it a try without downloading the game first. 
More games will be announced at the Xbox Series X games event this week on July 23rd, so this Thursday. So feel free to check that out. Finally, the article notes that Microsoft has been building towards xCloud for almost a decade, ever since the company first demoed Halo 4 running on a Windows phone back in 2013. And it's also been publicly testing xCloud for almost a year. Any thoughts, guys? I don't know. I think Stadia is kind of hosed, right? I mean, if you can get this thing for almost, you know, for a better discount on, on an actual console that works, right? I mean, I don't know, dude. Better technology. It's integrated with a really compelling console and PC content. And it's part of a broader ecosystem. And there's nothing, what's not to like, you know, they... I don't know. I think they're building a very compelling service. And when they start really subsidizing the hardware with the subscription, I think it'll be kind of the cheapest service to get into. Uh, they also announced um, earlier today that they were eliminating the 12-month subscription for Xbox Live. The speculation is that they will basically you know, eliminate that fee and basically eliminate the paywall to make it even easier to get into the ecosystem. Um, and then also probably at the same time pushing more of their Game Pass Ultimate. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, I think this just creates a much easier way of getting into the console world. And, and we're gonna talk about it a little bit later that perhaps they are trying to basically broaden out the appeal beyond you know the 18 to 44 year old males. And these kind of subsidized services kind of help with that entry into the system. Um, and it really also depends obviously on the content that they're building. So that will be the key other part of it. And the other thing that I heard uh, was that they are confirming that this Thursday's event is only about content. So they're not gonna talk about pricing or hardware. So we will just see a bunch of content that's coming out from, from Microsoft. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, um, I'm excited for the Game Pass Ultimate. Um, I'll definitely give it a shot. Um, the only thing I'm concerned about is just like the 100 plus games, what they end up actually being. Likely it's just going to be all the Microsoft games and maybe back catalog stuff inside of Game Pass, which to me isn't that interesting. Because I'd like to be using it to actually streaming to play the latest games, not just kind of limited to Microsoft IP and old games. Um, but I do feel like we've changed our tune here. Like all of a sudden, like when Microsoft has combined both of Eric's trigger words, <laughs> which is content <laughs> subscriptions and streaming, like now we're excited. <laughs> Combine these two things in a $5 a month package. But I think like the, the excitement over the future possibilities of opening up the funnel, reducing hardware costs, increasing subscriber base, you know, that we shouldn't ignore kind of the core issues that we have with both of these components in terms of content subscriptions and streamings uh, that we've had in the past. Like the good stuff here is that xCloud is supplementary to owning an Xbox. So versus, say, Stadia, where you have to be streaming at all times, even when you're at home connected to a TV, this makes a lot more sense. So streaming becomes supplemental when you're playing outside the living room um, instead of being the, the norm of how people play. And I think on the content side, we've reported this before, Game Pass has gotten a com pretty compelling offer. They've got to 10 million subscribers out of their 90 million MAU and have a pretty strong content offering. Uh, I still want to know the math on this, like uh, looking at the the churn of subscribers as well as just how much content they think they need to retain those subscribers, just because content within these things devalue very, very quickly. As we know, like games that are a year old, two years old, three years old, 
very, very quickly drop their value in a player's mind. Um, but in terms of pricing, you know, 10 bucks a month was for Xbox Live. And now they're asking 15 bucks a month, which includes Game Pass and um, the ability to stream to mobile devices. So that's really only an additional five bucks for streaming and Game Pass. And with all the costs of adding that exclusive content to make the subscription compelling, plus the fact that the more people play with xCloud, um, the costlier it gets, right? Like, how are they going to make that $5 worth it, right? And I think the real question is, like, is the hit to that spend depth going to be worth the expansion of their audience, right? Like, they are really banking on the fact that they can multiply their market with this lower hardware costs. Um, so, I, I don't know. Like, I think that's, that's my real question here. Eric, what do you think? Adam, all right, you're calling me out here. So, am I being inconsistent with my praise for Microsoft? Perhaps. Perhaps, perhaps. I did write a piece a long time ago about how I thought Microsoft would win this because they actually have a console, uh, something that's super compelling, and they're, they're adding an additional content subscription to help support the console it, and, and xCloud. And, and sorry, that Microsoft would win in this streaming battle because they have an actual console and, and then they could tie it to it. Um, but we are still talking about the same issue I've said many times. That this is like a race to zero, right? Like subscriptions inherently devalue content. Historically, content like this, giving away content like this would be a problem for the consoles. Historically, you would include it in a box or you would bundle it with the hardware and it would lead to like lower tie ratios. And that, that was bad, right? Fundamentally, this has happened for the Wii in particular. But and, and, and this may be an issue with when you're giving away so much content is that people aren't going to buy additional software because they already have so much software to play. There's no reason to buy Madden or FIFA or whatever. And I think this, this, this could be a long-term issue, but I think for this generation, I think we're okay. I think for this generation, this premium pricing for content will continue because we're, always, we're all focused on just really big franchises. So Madden, FIFA, Call of Duty, uh, you know, Last of Us, like these big tentpole moments that are super high, high AAA content. But I think where this really hurts people is, is in the, in the double A and the mid tier, right? So that, that, that part of the business is basically going to go away. Um, because when you have all these games available, you're not likely to buy the mid tier and, and indie games. Cause you just have all that content that you, that's already available to you. But again, there's long-term issues in terms of devaluing content when you're selling, as you said, a subscription for 15 bucks, Right, that's basically implying that the for a hundred games, the content's worth like ten cents or whatever it comes out to a dollar. Right, like that's not good. Right, that's not a, a, a good way of of valuing content. Um, but anyway, we'll see how this tra how it works. Right, we'll see if they get any traction. We'll see if it actually impacts the tie ratios for Microsoft. We have a direct comparison because Sony's not actually doing any of this. Right, so if if Microsoft tie ratios um, on a trailing basis are are significantly lower than Sony, then we know it's having an impact, right? Um, but, uh, but if Microsoft is able to expand the audience beyond this core with the content subscription, I think that's actually a net positive for the industry because I do think that the content that's available, at least for this next generation, will be compelling enough for people to purchase on top of these subscriptions. So we shall see if what happens. That, uh, and clearly this is something I've been tracking and track very closely because this could really hurt uh, the industry as a whole. So uh, we will, so we'll see. And does that make thoughts? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, is, that, does it make it less inconsistent with my triggers? 
it makes sense. <laughs> You're less triggered than I expected you to be. So that's nice. But the on, on xCloud, right? Like xCloud being a supplement to the subscription rather than being like the core way that players play. I think this makes a lot of sense. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, no, that was my point. I'm sorry, I, I was not very articulate. That was my point in my article. I'm like, the only way that this stuff makes sense is a supplement to something you're already doing. Like the compelling nature of the console and, and how easy it is to pick up and play, like that's what makes the console the console, right? And so the only way it works is if you have a console and then the ability to play, you know, xCloud wherever you want to play it, right? So yeah, I, that's exactly what I wrote was that it was going to be supplemental. It's not going to be a standalone service. It makes no sense as a standalone service. And that's why I thought any of these standalone services wouldn't work. Yeah. All right, moving on. All right. Uh, China removes Supercell's heyday and 2,500 other games from the App Store. So they basically, for the first week of July, are removing 2,500 games, which is basically, I don't know, like seven times or something what it was the week before. Um, and and the, frankly, these games were not all that big. They were like, Heyday was the only big name. Contract Killers and Solitaire were, were two others that were, you know, relatively big. But they're only like lifetime revenues of 34 million and 133 million downloads. So a lot of downloads, but not much revenue. But it's not a big impact on Western developers so far. Um, um, and evidently, like, th this is just a common practice for them. It just kind of stepped up over the last uh, week or so. So we will see if it actually continues, but we're not really quite sure um, if that's the case. But I guess the reason I wanted to point this out and after, is that, you know, right now it's very small games, but China has ultimate power in terms of what they do. They allow only games that, are, um, that have a uh, government ID issued ID. Uh, and so that restricts a lot of games from coming over there, particularly there's a lot of content subscription, content protection. Um, so I guess I wanted to point this out first. I want to give kudos to Sensor Tower for actually pointing this stuff out, right? And, and tracking these kind of things. And I hope they continue to do that. But also like how onerous it is a system to get games into China. And then also the ability for China to just basically <laughs> cancel anything they want to cancel and, and pull it off the store uh, they have the ultimate control and just another example of how it's you know the unfair it is in, in china for u.s and western companies versus our you know benevolent uh system is allowing them to do whatever the hell they want over here so just wanted to point that out but good job sensor tower for pointing out some like less positive things and not just doing being pr shills for the uh for the industry thanks <laughs> All right. Uh, now you're going to get me all hot and bothered again with glue. Uh, I, you know, I swear to God, you put this shit on here just to bug me, right? Just to make me go crazy. Because so, so, this is not, this is the biggest fluff PR piece of shit piece ever, right? Like, this is not, I, I hate these kind of articles because, you know, Venture Beat, like, they have great content. I'm not going to give them a hard time. They do have great content. But some of the crap that they put on there is just like, Dude, are you in business? Are you like, are you actual like, you know, legitimate journalists? Or are you just complete shills for for industry? You know. Uh, anyway, continue with your 
update and I, I haven't even fun. started. I haven't even started, but I kind of, I, this is, this is, this is off to a hot start. No, but so. okay. Just let me say one thing. So like <laughs> the thing is with this, this shit, like we, we edit like a, 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 a Dropbox document. Right. And so like, I'm working on my stuff and, and, and Joseph's working on his stuff. And of course the minute Mishka comes on, he starts putting these big blue letters of glue reloads their chest for mobile game acquisition. And he's typing all this stuff. And I know he's sitting there behind the scenes snickering that Eric is going to get fucking crazy on this shit. And, and that's all he's doing. Like that his, his whole raison d'etre is basically to make me upset. So go ahead. I'm going to go take a break. <laughs> no, I just think this was a really interesting article. And I think it's, but it's also entertaining <laughs> yeah. to, to, to get Eric's take on this. Anyway, let's get back to the article. So this was called Glue Reloads Its War Chest for Mobile Game Acquisition. And it was more of a Q&A with VentureBeat. So what happened was that we, we mentioned this news before and, and that Glue was raising a secondary round or, or um, anyway, they were raising more money from the stocks and they raised 151.8 million in secondary public offering. Yes, that, that's what it was. And in this Q&A, they had Chris Akavan, who's their senior vice president. I believe he's chief revenue officer, if I'm correct. Really nice dude. I've actually met him, I think, a couple of times. Anyways, it's a long article. It's a very long article. It's a very long Q&A. And, and they are, as Eric mentioned, really pitching them softballs um, in, in a lot of things. So I kind of extracted a few key points that they were talking about. Number one was they really talked about live operations. And I'm just going to quote here, Chris, and he says, the company had restructured over a number of years to focus on what we call growth gains, games we operate over the course of long period of time. We felt like we're now in a good place where we can bring on another great studio and team into the picture and support their growth. The capital raise was to give us the flexibility to pursue acquisition if we find a good fit. And overall, this article has a lot of stuff where they talk about growth, growth, growth. And to be frank, as we covered before, Glue has been doing pretty good during COVID times when it comes to growth. Their main franchise, Design Home, has grown by 50%, as has COVID fashion, an older version sort of of Design Home, similar type of game. We saw MLB reaching six million net a month, which is, you know, pretty good. I don't, I don't think the baseball season is even going. I'm, I, I'm not sure. This is a very American thing. We've seen Kim, Kim K nearly doubling its run rate, and despite the decline, Disney Sorcerer's Arena has been doing pretty well, um, about three million in net revenue. So when he talks about growth, they, they actually have growth. They've, they've actually been quite successful, if not one of the most successful companies during the COVID uh, in, terms of raise, in terms of growing their franchises. The second point that they talk about in this Q&A was M&A strategy. And I'm going to quote again. What I'll say about that, we are genre agnostic. We're willing to look at studios across a wide variety of genres. But we ultimately want to invest in opportunities where we think there's a differentiated market to go after or a significantly growing market where we can grab a meaningful share. We tend to shy away from hyper-competitive, hyper-saturated markets like social casino market. We're open to the full spectrum from earlier stage opportunities where we see a good DNA fit that we can help accelerate through the mature and even potentially more mature than we've done in the past. So 
when it comes to their M&A strategy, it was really confusing to have this long on an article where they did not really state any M&A strategy. Uh, every time they were talking about M&A, <laughs> they were basically saying, we're going to buy anything that makes money and grows, uh, which is not a strategy. It's opportunistic approach to M&A. And it just, and then he, he mentioned a lot of examples that were true because glue has been very successful in M&A. And in fact, I would state that glue has survived this long due to M&A. Uh, everything from Kim K to Crowdstar acquisition to Deer Hunter to Tapsparts are all acquisitions. I don't even know what games they've done internally apart from Sorcerer's Arena that, that were kind of like internally built teams. Even Diner Dash is actually acquired franchise. So, so in that sense, historically, they have been successful in M&A because they wouldn't exist without the M&A. So, but overall, they don't seem to have an M&A strategy apart from not doing social casino, which is, I guess, a smart approach, but that still is not a strategy. And, and it would be great to hear Chris actually explain the strategy of, of what they're doing rather than, than um, yeah. Anyway, and the, the third one was ways of working. So again, I'm going to quote he's, uh, one of the quotes. So this is a really long one. So I just picked up three things. The ways of working was we try to be very data driven and also consumer insights driven. Look at the data and understand it, but also layer on the more subjective pieces that you can get through consumer insights, get that holistic view on how users are experiencing a game. Whenever we decide to invest in a, a product, not a game, a product, it is because the signals coming from across that spectrum of data and insights are telling us that we are too far off the mark to create a long-term successful growth game. So, you know, I've, I've been working on a pitch deck and I've been, I've been working on strategy and, and that kind of stuff. So this was kind of close to, to what I've been working with. And it did not make any sense to me. Like this is business as usual in, in literally every company that I know. It's like, we look at the market, we do consumer insights. Uh, then we try to, you know, put a shot on goal. And, and if it's too far from the goal, we're just going to divest. It just doesn't give a, like, personally, it didn't give a too good of a look of, of what is unique about glue? Like, why should we be working with glue? And, and this sort of a, even the approach of calling them products, not games, is, is a bit of a, like, um, bland to me. This is my own personal experience, but compared to talking to a lot of different companies and, and looking on how they invest, and of course, Supercell being the, the number one in terms of, like, the infinite game approach, uh, this one felt like the other spectrum of that type of approach where it was very, very neutral, very bland, very sort of a like, you know, we just, we look at the data and make, make our calls. And then it's, um, yeah, it didn't blow my socks up. Anyway, overall, I do have to say that Glue has been very, very successful during this COVID times and the lockdown times and they have grown. And the question is just, what are they going to do with 150 150 million that they got through secondary public offering. They're saying that they're going to buy anything that makes sense, that makes money and, and is growing. And, and, and um, that's not a lot of money to invest, to be honest. Uh, you would have to take pretty big of a risk to get anything meaningful done. I know the Crowdstar investment was probably the biggest, one of the biggest, um, one of the most successful acquisitions in mobile gaming history. Uh, along with uh, what's that Warner Brothers game that the uh, Golf Clash acquisition? Play you know? Yeah, Playdemic. 
a company that we can't mention here on the podcast. Anyway, <laughs> the Playdemic play acquisition was another one, like Crowdstar level acquisition, where where uh, they would, they just got super lucky. But it is a quite a big of a question. And, and Glue hasn't acquired anything since Crowdstar, and that was 2016, if I'm correct. And um, to just to summarize, this this wasn't like I wasn't blown away. Right? It, it, there was no strategy. Um, the ways of working were in no way unique and um, the money that they raise is not that much to buy anything meaningful. So they would have to get super, super lucky, uh, which they have gotten always before. So I don't see why they wouldn't again, acquire something that becomes a billion dollar franchise. So I think based on history, glue is going to be successful. Uh, but reading this, you, you know, it's it's hard to say. It's 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 more on the luck side than than the um, than the strategy. So over to Eric. Well, all right. I'm going to be a little bit more reasonable on this. So this this company has been built by M and A. Like you're you're totally right. I don't think Deer Hunter or Kim Kardashian. I think those were both developed internally. They did no, acquire. They, they the, mentioned that they yeah they acquired the studios. They but acquired the license, but I don't know if they acquired they acquired the studio of Deer Hunter as well. Hmm, I don't remember that. But anyway. Crowdstar is basically the only thing that matters, and and to some and Tap Sports and Crowdstar, Diner Dash is decent, but it's really those two games that are really driving most of the growth. And of course, those were all both all done by Nikola, I believe, uh, the you know the team before uh, the current team. So I would just say, from a stock perspective, I would say buyer beware. Right? Is that the expectations is that Disney will grow next year, which is clearly not manifesting itself in the data. <laughs> um, and that also that Deer Hunter will do over a hundred million. You know, people are comparing it to Call of Duty <laughs> out there. Like the, that's, the, the, that's the level of sophistication to some people out there. So I do think they are benefiting from an amazing run. Like you look at the data and it is unbelievable how well they did during COVID. They basically doubled down on all UA. They, they took advantage of the discounts. They got huge influxes of players into the, into the ecosystem. And some games continue to perform reasonably well, but most of them are, have fallen back down to where they were pre-COVID, which is kind of a common theme amongst a lot of publishers out there. And so they, they are basically going right back where they were. And there also this IDFA issue is something that could impact them pretty dramatically uh, because I don't think they are prepared to handle any type of issues with the IDFA Apple issue. So look, valuation is stretched, right? And I think if you believe they can grow revenue and earnings next year with the lineup that they have, which is basically Deer Hunter, then go for it, right? I think that's an interesting play, but I, I just, I have the issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as M&A, like they need teams. There's like no doubt, right? They need more games in development. They need a pipeline because really they don't have much of a pipeline at all right now besides Deer Hunter. So picking up good devs makes sense. And I agree with you is that, you know, 100 to 200 million is probably the max they could do. Isn't a lot of money, right? And that's not a lot of revenue, right? If you look at the multiples that are out there. So if they acquire some small like company, I don't know how much that really adds to them. And and as a developer, anyone that's looking at getting acquired by Glue, I think it's a very volatile stock and a very volatile <laughs> company, right? Things have changed quite a bit over the years. So I would actually look more towards Zynga or bigger companies like EA even, um, and, and certainly not take any stock. Like I would basically get as much cash as possible if you're doing an acquisition with Glue. But other than that, like 
you know, we'll see how it all turns out. You know, these, these guys were $11, like what, 18 months ago, and they went down to $4 and they're now back at about $10. So we'll see if this uh, roller coaster continues over the years. How's that for being a little bit more objective, Joseph? The, this, He's looking this, at me I and mean, smiling. <laughs> but, but but this was this was this it's interesting to see like this article came after like in my opinion glue is a lot of a follower company and this company this this pr piece came after the chris petrovich article that, that right. came out a couple right. of weeks ago and the whole idea behind this is to inform companies that you have money you want to acquire we're looking to acquire and it's really fun to work with us. Like that, that was the article in I know, reality. I know. But it failed, in my opinion, to, to really position Glue as an interesting acquirer. Like where Zynga comes in, like, hey, we come in, we give you full autonomy. All the CEOs that we acquired report directly to the CEO, and they are having gay old time. Everybody's super happy. Company is <laughs> growing, and we're just killing it together and so forth. And, and we have a very hands-off approach, and we only buy the premium like that was that was basically the chris's message in this case it's more like yeah we do like we're really good at ua and marketing and we do consumer research and we don't do hyper competition basically we'll invest into anything every size we bought a aqua hire company with three we bought crowdstar at this and you know holla at me we got money that, that was basically <laughs> that was basically it i mean so but, I but yeah i mean that is that <laughs> i mean it's the pr strategy right yeah Right, it's, it's becoming. But, yeah, but it's the second oh. thing we did the PR strategy um, breakdown in the last one where we had Scopely and then we had Glue article as well, and here again, like I think Scopely does the best PR in in the, in the business where where they really give the like in this case it would have been great to give the developers the people from CrowdStar or Tap Sports talk about Glue and how they approach. And yeah, I, really. No, that that's smart. And you should be you should be in PR, dude. Uh, and and but but in this case you kind of got the suit talking about the products and I have nothing against Chris he's a phenomenal and really smart guy but if you're trying to sell like you have to bring in the people you've acquired and let them do the talking for you and so so glue come on guys yeah and then they uh, just came up with their own name for forever franchise we call yeah. them growth games and exactly <laughs> like like all of this all of this is like we've heard everything like like just let's and now I like I know people who run the studios at Glue and they're super smart, just absolutely great people and um, making really good games. And I think they should be the one talking in this case. Like put the head of studio of Tap Sports, Jerome Collin. He's a great dude. Put him on. Like let him talk about how it is working on with WWE, with with MLB, all the opportunities they're taking, what what worked, what didn't, you know. I think that's more interesting for the studios to read on on how glue has supported a studio rather than this you know we grow products by looking at the markets and we do we place bets on goals type of communication so that's that's all that's all, all i right. gotta say wait okay so to be fair though like let, let's like actually call a spade a spade for a moment here because we're being a little bit hypocritical because mm -hmm. We had that still front guy on who I really like and respect. The only reason the guy came on is for the exact same reason, right? He, he doesn't want to talk to us no morons like on this podcast. He wants to like tell people that they're out there acquiring, right? They're doing, we're doing exactly what VentureBeat is doing. You know, yeah. I was just thinking about so, it for a moment. So, I felt, I'm feeling dirty now. No, right? no, no, no. So uh, first of all, I wasn't Filthy. on that po podcast, which you did with Alexis Bonte. And the, the, again, difference between Steelfront communication 
who's a, he's a CEO at COO at Steelfront compared to this is that they built their whole business by acquiring and all these guys had their own company. So Alexis, who you had on a podcast also had his company who he sold to Steelfront, And now he's saying like, Hey, he's like, he's like both. He's a suit and a guy that got acquired. No, no, no. So, I, no and I they were very that. transparent about their deal, right? Like yeah. they showed all the details behind no, it. No, sorry. Phone. I'm not saying that they're, they, they don't have a better PR strategy and they don't have a better strategy as a whole in terms of consolidating. Yeah, Stillfront would be a better place to go than, than Glue, in my opinion. I'm saying that we, as a podcast, are complete <laughs> whores and we had them on wow. to talk about this, the same stuff. And so I'm being hypocritical because I'm, 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 I'm calling out VentureBeat, but in the reality, we were doing the yeah. same shit. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We, just, we, I don't want to be clear. Like, I want to make sure that I'm- Okay, so I'm you're call, I'm not calling it VentureBeat. I'm just saying, put, put a different spin on it. This is just a, a deconstruction of their PR strategy. And that's, that's all. Uh, I, I, I felt, I didn't, I wasn't excited. I wasn't excited reading this as I would be even just going through the Stillfront stuff or even, even like the Supercell has, has done communication about their M&A and they had a different strategy, you know, whether it worked or not is, is a, a totally different story, but they had a specific strategy. They talked about it. Um, you know, it was, it was something different and it, developers, a lot of these small developers who they were after really liked that strategy and that communication around it. And hence they got a lot of deals done. And, and, and just in this case, it's, it's as vanilla as you can get. It's not even like Madagascar vanilla bean. It's just, <laughs> it's your, it's your like, uh, I don't know, like, um, Costco vanilla. <laughs> All right. So a lot of shots fired. I think the, the only person left on the podcast to defend glue is Adam. <laughs> not get involved in this. I, I fell asleep halfway through that. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, we're kind of running out of time, but if you guys are interested in more of the M&A aspects and want to find out who glue is acquiring, mm -hmm. I will release a discussion on M&A that uh, has been getting a lot of great feedback, but I'll release that later this week, maybe tomorrow or Thursday. Also, open invitation to Chris to come on our podcast and talk about their M&A strategy, just like Stillfront did. Uh, I'm sure that we won't pitch like softballs, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about M&A strategy, like what is their approach? I'm sure there is uh, an interesting approach. I'm sure they're, they're looking at different stuff, and, and it would be great to get somebody from Glue to talk, you know, talk about what, what's happening there. All right. And there you have it. I think that's it, unless there's any final message. No, just all right. Good. Catch All you guys good. later. Till next Bye. week. Bye.